Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. Welcome to the show. I'm Higher Peaks. I'm sitting here with Jason Wilson, father, husband, host of Curious About Cannabis podcast, and founder and CEO of Natural Learning Enterprises. Welcome back, brother. Man, so good to be back. It's been a while, but I'm so glad to see you making new episodes and always happy to reconnect. Yeah, it, it and I really wanted to catch up. You know, I, I don't know if you heard the, the last episode that I released, like, I don't know, a couple months ago that was an old one from a couple of years ago. But, uh, like between us, yeah. Like yeah. the last time we uh, sat down, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dude, that was a great that was cool conversation. To hear that come out. Yeah, it was yeah. neat. It was really weird to, uh, you know, listen back on and think about like where was my head at two years ago, and think about how things have evolved. Um, yeah, it was really cool. Uh, I'll tell you now. You know, wanting to catch up with you, I looked at your uh, website, Natural Learning Enterprises, and. Uh, Man, I'll tell you, it's grown. Holy moly, brother. Yeah, it's slowly but surely. Um, a lot of that's because of 2020, you know, um, when everything shut down, that was, you know, such a big deal for everybody. But for me, it was like, okay, I can't do consulting anymore because I can't go to anyone's lab. Um, and you know, just everything was turned off. So then I was like, well, what do I do? And I started to put a ton of energy into the, um, like online courses and trying to get, um, online education stuff built rather than, you know, uh, before 2020, I did a lot of my education stuff in person doing those workshops, um, around Oregon and, um, and everything. And so, I kind of just switched into another gear and was like, let's do as much virtual as we can because that's the only option right now. And that led to um, building some cool stuff um, along the way. And now I'm trying to figure out where to <laughs> where to take it all. That's awesome. I mean, well, the, the, the plat- <clears throat> excuse me, the platform's grown. It's uh, I mean, th- there's a ton of information on there. Um, what's it like back on the uh, what are you on central time? What's it like back yeah, over there? Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, it's been a definitely a culture shock, even though I was born and raised here. Um, you know, I was in Oregon for a decade, so it's I spent my whole real adult life up until now, um, you know, in Oregon. And so it's definitely been interesting, you know, for some background, anyone listening. Um so yes, I was born and raised in Mississippi. Um, Mississippi just legalized medical cannabis um, after like a two-year de- delay because technically the people of Mississippi voted for it in 2020 
And then um, Mississippi's legislature decided that the state actually has no real ballot initiative process due to a technicality. And so that got thrown out. And then um, legislators had to put together a package to at least to try to keep people happy because so many people were upset, rightfully so. Um, they put together a, a package and passed it. And so medical cannabis is legal out here in Mississippi now. So that was really attractive. Um, but there's, you know, a number of things that led to me coming back. Uh, my parents, I'm an only child and my parents are, you know, getting older, not in great health. And so that was one of the big things to try to figure out how to get back to the South. Um, and then from there seeing Mississippi flip and then, you know, 2020, I was talking about, you know, just everything shutting down, but 2020 was an epic year for us in Oregon because of the wildfires. That was the Almeda fire and, you know, all of that that came through and, um, so much, just so much changed, um, on many levels, a lot of companies folded, a lot of companies got bought out and changed the whole landscape of cannabis really has gone through a shakeup. Um, so there's just a lot of dynamics there. So I was, you know, at that point after getting through that fire and <laughs> almost having to evacuate and see Medford burn down, um, <laughs> luckily that didn't happen, but we still watched talent and Phoenix burn down and you know, that was crazy. And then, um, you know, thinking about my parents and not being able to get to family and friends during COVID, that was a really um, significant issue that um, had never been an issue before, the idea that I couldn't just travel or go where I wanted. Um, so then that meant that my wife and I had basically no support for, you know, raising our daughter and, you know, things like that. My parents were there, but, you know, not in great health and not wanting to put all that pressure on them. So it's like all these variables came together to say, okay, it's time to go back to Mississippi and figure out how to take everything that I've built and learned and somehow try to I mean, continue that work. I mean, I'm still doing Curious About Cannabis, still consults across the country um, when I can find work, which has been particularly difficult lately, um, because of the, uh, economic situation, but, um, that's kind of how that all came together. And so I got out here and, um, didn't know what to expect. The medical program that was passed here, I'm actually kind of proud of it. It's not what it should be, but it's a lot better than what it could have been. And it's a lot better than like what Louisiana and several other states have have done. So I'm kind of proud of them for that. Um, so I've been just kind of getting um, in touch with the landscape, trying to understand who are the players, what companies are coming about in Mississippi, what are some of the um, educational opportunities? Like what do people in Mississippi think about cannabis? What questions are they asking? Because it's a very different demographic of people than in Oregon, um, just because there's stigma and taboo is just much more intense. And so a lot of folks out here are still even trying to muster up the nerve to ask questions about cannabis. So it's presented some interesting challenges and opportunities in that way of really rethinking the audience and where they're at and their kind of community context. Um, and then I'm also trying to figure out, you know, what opportunities are there here to 
try to do some interesting research and coordinate with, you know, a lot of folks that I've known through the years um, in the South. There's now a lot of good scientists in South Carolina and Tennessee and uh, Florida and other places. So I'm kind of starting to get my bearings and starting to kind of feel oriented a bit, but um, I'd be lying if I uh, didn't say that I, you know, don't miss Oregon every single day. I wish I was still there. Um, and it, it's been a, a hard transition for me, particularly. I think my wife has actually handled it really, really well. My daughter handled it really, really well, better than I thought she would. Um, but for me, it's still been uh, quite a challenge to get adjusted. Yeah. And it, well, it sounds like from your description, uh, cause I really haven't talked to anybody from Mississippi, but it sounds like from your description that it's kind of a step back in time. Am I? Am oh I... yes. That's how I've been describing it. Yeah. It's like, okay. <clears throat> imagine, imagine where Oregon was before dispensaries were legal, you know, back in what, 2012, 13, yeah. all that time. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like jumping back to that time in the sense of like, where people's minds are at and their familiarity with products, their, you know, what questions they're asking, you know, um, it, it's very much like going back in time, although it's even different because like I said, you've got people that have been living in this extreme prohibition all the way up until last year. And so, um, it's still, it just, people are still uncomfortable with it. People are scared to get their cards. Which I remember that in Oregon. I remember oh, yeah. people being scared to get their card, scared to be on a registry somewhere. Yeah. You know, that sort of Thinking thing. Thinking the so cops are going to raid you or something. <laughs> right. Now, yeah. Uh, and I, I just, uh, go ahead. I mean, so it, it, for lack of better analogy, like, is it kind of a reefer madness? Not uh, exactly. Hill? No. I mean, so it's not that bad. Hemp has, hemp has done a lot to, change minds here yeah. in the Southeast. Um, one thing I noticed when I got back to Mississippi is that there were CBD shops everywhere. And some of these shops are basically dispensaries. Um, they have, you know, all the products you'd expect a dispensary to carry. Um, but they're all hemp products, hemp derived products. Delta eight THC is huge out here. Um, Interesting. And so, there's been a lot of softening of the stigma just from that. A lot of people have gotten exposure to cannabis through the hemp side, either through CBD or Delta 8 THC. Those are the two main avenues. Um, and so, you know, when medical came along, a lot of people were ready for that. Over, over 74% of the state voted for it. Um, so, it's definitely um, far beyond even being like a partisan issue or anything like that. You know, basically three quarters of the state supports uh, medical cannabis in the form that it passed. And there's already a push for adult use because there's been so much frustration around what it took to get medical passed. You know, the fact that there was a ballot initiative and then the ballot initiative got thrown out and then they had to wait for politicians to put together some program that was a compromise of what the people wanted. Well, now the people are kind of like, uh, screw this. Like, can we just go straight to adult use? Because um, getting caught up in all of these details around the medical program is just slowing things down and preventing people from um, getting access to what they want. You know, it drives up prices. 
one of the big issues with Mississippi's program, they tried to draw from Florida, which has fairly strict monthly purchasing limits. And Mississippi said, well, we're not going to go monthly limits. We're going weekly, which is the dumbest <laughs> idea I've ever heard. Wow. And uh, so like right now I have my medical card in Mississippi. So um, I can buy what are called six units a week. And um, a unit is either an eighth, which is hilarious. They're even thinking this way. Um, a unit is either an eighth or a gram of concentrate or a unit of or 100 milligrams of an edible. So technically you could have like a 300 milligram edible, but it would be, it would cost you three units, you know? Three units. Um, oh my God. It sounds like you're in a commissary, man. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it, no, it really, it really is set up that way. And it's like a rolling, it's a rolling reset. So it's not like your balance resets on Sunday. No, no, no. Your balance is always resetting. Um, relative to when you last bought something. Oh my so gosh. But let's make it better. Let's also stack on to the fact that um, there's no way for patients to look up how many units they have available to purchase. And there's no way for the dispensaries to look it up either. All the dispensaries can do is try to add products to your account. And then if they max it out, they're like, okay, that's how many you have. Um, but there's currently no way to even see this information to know like, like right. right now, if I went to the dispensary, I have no idea how many units I can actually buy. I'm like, I think two, three, maybe. Um, so it's the dumbest thing. It's one of the things I'm, there's two things I'm very frustrated about with Mississippi's program. One are the purchasing limits. Two is that home grow is not legal yet. Um, I think it will be eventually, but right now it's still not legal. And I'm like, that's just, um, the. and the third thing is that they require prepackaged product, which is in my opinion, abhorrent because it allows companies to get away with really shady things, pushing product yeah. that should not be sold for what it's sold for. And patients have no way to know, like you can't open the jar and look. Um, and you know, that's kind of Canada's model that they went with prepackaged stuff. And so Mississippi took a blend of all these bad ideas and <laughs> put them together. However, <laughs> what they got right is, um, they've created an interesting system where you can kind of get licensed to do whatever you want. Um, most of the licensing fees are not too bad with the exception of for testing labs, they're very high. Um, and that was one of the things I considered in moving here. I was like, maybe I'll start a testing lab or a research lab. Um, but the licensing fees for that were too high, but if you want to grow or extract manufactured products, you can get started pretty low budget. Um, and I'm happy to see that, that the barrier to entry is fairly low. Um, one thing that's sort of a plus and minus is Mississippi didn't set um, caps on licenses, which Oregon didn't either. And we know how that well, goes. Until, um, well, I mean, yeah. they did eventually put a cap on it, but yeah. yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now you have to so, buy a license for a hundred thousand dollars. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cause what they'll do, they'll let it play out until the market gets saturated. Then they'll put a stop. And then, yeah, then you've got to basically trade licenses that already exist. Um, I imagine Mississippi will do the exact same thing. It's a money grabbing uh, strategy. Um, you let, you know, everyone pay in all of these, you know, fees and everything to, to get all of these licenses with no real um, 
um, thought to how it's going to kind of affect some of the market dynamics and um, what eventually will happen in Mississippi, like it's happened anywhere that has not had caps, is there'll be a crash at some point um, because there'll just be too many players um, getting into the game with no way to get product out of the state. And, um, you know, it's just the inevitable. So it's almost um, like buying it. Go ahead. No, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's almost like buying a dot com now, though. Like if you're yeah, smart, yeah. if you, if you're smart and you got the money, it's like, okay, I'm going to buy a bunch of licenses and then I'll wait five years and then, yeah. you know, yep, absolutely. Yeah, play that's, them off, and that's, which, a, that's the game. <laughs> Cause I mean, um, that, I, and uh, you know, a lot of these big, big, uh, celebrity names, you know, are trying to kind of make that move too. Like they're already cookies is already here. Um, Belushi is, um, working on a deal with the Southern sky here. Um, and, and a lot of that is, is sort of these plans too. Like what happens with the license later? Um, yeah, exactly. So we'll see. Uh, you, and I wanted to bring this stuff up because I really want beings that you're, you're from a testing background and you've got the knowledge, uh, Oregon now has added in, pardon my language, I'm going to try to say this and mm -hmm. you'll correct me, but Asperilagus, Asperilagus, Aspergillus, Aspergillus. Okay. Uh, yeah. We started testing for that finally. Um, and I kind of wanted to run that by you and see what you think. Is that, is that a complete test? Is that a, is something that's good, bad? Is it, is it helping with the mold issue? What? Yeah, so I need to look, um, you know, because I'm not in Oregon anymore, I haven't looked at the exact language of the of the rule, but I am familiar with what's going on in terms of um, that now there's aspergillus testing and for anyone listening that doesn't understand kind of the context behind that. Um, aspergillus is a, is a genus of fungus, uh, very ubiquitous, found in dirt, it's in the air all over the place, and there's different species of it. And there's a handful of species, about five of them or so, that in the food and dietary supplement markets, um, they're generally controlled. Aspergillus niger, Aspergillus, um, there's several others, you know, you can look up. And I've written about them in the Curious About Cannabis book as well, um, more at length. And these are species of Aspergillus that tend to produce mycotoxins and tend to... Um, separately cause a condition called aspergillosis, which is where you inhale these aspergillus spores and they nest in your lungs and they can start to grow inside of the lungs and eventually even possibly compromise lung function and it can be fatal. Um, so it's, it sounds scary, you know, from that perspective of what if, what could happen? Um, you know, there are reports of aspergillus contaminated cannabis leading to fatalities in immunocompromised individuals. There's even at least one case study that I've seen of um, those kinds of infections happening in someone who was not immunocompromised. So it's, it's something to be aware of. Um, there's a lot of questions around how big of a problem is it? How much control do we need around it? And that's where I think some of the controversy around the aspergillus testing in Oregon has come into play. Um, a lot of, so how this has impacted people, um, a lot of the complaints that have come up in Oregon is, um, well, I'm using living soil and I'm using compost teas and I'm using all of these things that, um, will have aspergillus in them naturally as part of just the environment. 
and now I'm failing tests for aspergillus when actually my product is safe. And, um, and it's just because I'm being penalized for using, you know, these, these different growing methods. Right. And there's right. a lot, there's a lot to kind of like unpack in that because, um, you know, there are a lot of places now that test for aspergillus and a lot of growers have kind of been through this issue and come out the other side successfully. So on one side, there's like, well, um, what a lot of the scientists will say is you should be able to deal with it. Like this shouldn't actually be a problem because other people are passing their tests just fine. So why can't you, which is a very, um, kind of dismissive response, but I've seen that a lot, um, particularly on like LinkedIn and stuff debates, um, where people are bringing this up. And I, I don't really like that, that response of like, like, why can't you just do better? Um, because there's just so many factors at play. Now, what I'm unfamiliar with, and I really wish I knew so that I could talk more specifically to it, I don't know on the testing side in Oregon how specific they have to be in their tests. Like, I don't know if they're looking specifically at those four or five species of aspergillus or if they're doing a more broad test. My assumption has been that they're looking at those four or five because that's yeah what most states are doing that's that's the the common you know way of going about that um and then the other controversial part of it is how this stuff is tested for in order to identify species you use dna testing and when you test for dna you get into a potential problem where you don't know if the DNA you're looking at is from a living organism or is from an organism that was there previously, but is no longer alive. Um, all you know is that the DNA is there. And so put all of that together and you've got a really tricky situation where particularly in more humid growing environments, um, you know, I've seen a lot of these complaints coming out from like Eugene North, but I've seen Southern Oregon folks complain about it too. Um, you know, you, you've got this situation where people are trying to grow in ecologically, you know, um, respectful ways and trying to utilize um, living soil, compost teas, all these, these inputs, and uh, they feel like they're getting penalized for it. And the testing is not really providing answers that the growers want in terms of like, is actual living aspergillus niger on this product or not? Um, and to do that requires culturing. So you have to, you get the DNA hit and you're like, oh no, it's failed for aspergillus, whatever. Well, really what you should do after that is you should take a Petri dish with nutritive media in it. And, and you know this, cause you've been all into my college. Absolutely. Lately. Throw some, um, so, throw some auger. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. You get yeah. your auger and yep. you take a sample and put mm. it in there, seal it up, watch yep. it grow. You see what colonies form on that auger. And then, um, you take collections of the colonies that you see on there, do DNA tests on those. You start to try to see, okay, of the things that are living, what is there? It's much more involved, much more expensive. And a lot of labs won't do that unless it's specifically requested and usually kind of um, done as a project. It's not often integrated as a normal part of 
quality control just because of the cost to the lab, the expense uh, to the lab to try to verify um, those things. So that's well, and time too. In I a mean, nutshell, yeah. I, I mean, think of the time it takes. I mean, if you have to culture that yeah. and put it in a dish, that's going to take a couple of days at minimum. I mean, so at minimum, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, I mean, I yeah, I can see it's just a lot of time and effort. I guess uh, I'll tell you this one thing and you probably already know this is about 17.5 million companies have jumped on the bandwagon and sell some sort of unit that helps with the, the fungus, you know, like I, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So of course, that train of course. is, yeah, that train is, is gone. Uh, but so far I've not heard any big stories of anybody like big farms that I know of, or that are always on the shelf or anything like that have failed. Um, it's just been a huge friggin' concern. And I did want to yes. ask, well, I just want to say, yeah, that, that's that's the big thing. It's been a concern. It's been a big thing in the media um, and a lot of worry and, and scare. But I, I agree. I haven't actually seen evidence that it's a significant problem that's costing people a lot of money outside of a, a couple of cases that I've seen. And even those, you're like, well, I got a lot of questions because if this was such a big problem, you you ought to see a lot of um, a lot of growers. Um, going out of business because they're having to kill their crops. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. You can lose one crop and be done. I mean, depending on how big you are. So uh, I, I guess my my question to you, since you know a lot about it, is is are we like, why are we nitpicking? Why aren't we like, is it not possible to test for more than just like one fungus or one mold? Like, why are we picking on just this one? And is it just this one that's a concern or do or are there other ones? Like you said, there was like five, right? So, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Are so we that's just... a really good question. Yeah. I mean, the, the big focus is that there are documented cases of fatalities associated with aspergillosis and cannabis. So that's that is one reason why it is honed in on. Um, we don't have yet, to my knowledge, um, reported case studies of fatalities associated with some other fungal infections of the lungs and things that um, would come from, you know, like even, um, you know, penicillium and uh, there's all sorts of stuff, Cladosporium and a, a variety of, of different fungi that are potentially toxic, depending on the species, depending on the environment and everything. But um it's aspergil- uh, um, aspergillus has definitely, you know, become the targeted one because of those um, reported fatalities. It's not really, this is something that's been weighing on my mind a lot lately, just how a lot of the testing rules and quality parameters and stuff around canvas that they, they, they kind of sometimes get, I'm trying to be careful with how I say this because I don't want people to take it the wrong way. They sometimes go a little too far or, or I think sometimes focus a little too much on testing. And, you know, in my, the way that I think about quality management, um, one of my favorite sort of quality management gurus from um, back in the days, W. Uh, Edward Dimming, and he has a list of, like 14 points of total quality management. And one of those points is to not be overly reliant on inspection and final product evaluation. And that's what testing is. You know, it's that final point of 
hit it, make sure everything's good, and, and then move on. Theoretically, there are all sorts of ways to manage quality where you don't have to put all of that impetus on, you know, that last quality check. Um, and it seems like in the canvas industry, there's this push to just add more and more and more. Just like, what else can we control for? What else can we require testing for? And, and some of that is lobbied by the testing lab companies and other people that have vested interests, um, the people that supply the cannabis testing labs. I think people underestimate the power that those companies have because they're not technically cannabis companies and they're not even cannabis testing labs, but these companies that are supplying the testing labs that are providing the equipment, et cetera, they, they are stakeholders and they do have vested interest in seeing more methods be mandated and that sort of thing. Because for every state that happens, they get new contracts that are very big where they're selling, right. you know, equipment that's tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, um, you know, there's just a lot of kind of socio-political elements involved around testing that I'm not totally comfortable with. Um, and I think that if we took, take a step back and think about what we're trying to do and what the point is, there are ways to hold producers accountable and for them to own quality more um, that doesn't require as much testing and would likely um, do just as well, or if not better, at protecting public health and safety, which is really the goal. Um, so yeah, to come back to your question, why are we focused on aspergillus? It's because those reported fatalities, primarily aspergillosis is the one of the main concerns. They say they're concerned about mycotoxins as well, which I think is always a reasonable concern. However, yeah. now, you know, in the early days, when, we, when you and I first started talking, I was doing mycotoxin research in the lab, trying to understand how prevalent it might be and jump forward all these years later. It, it doesn't really seem like mycotoxins, at least from aspergillus, are a huge concern. They show up, but very rarely um, in levels that would be concerning. Um, and so then, you know, if it's like, well, if mycotoxins are not the main concern, then aspergillosis, you know, surely is the main concern. Um, and that, again, immunocompromised patients, it is a serious concern. This is one reason why I think that if we're going to get so caught up in these testing requirements and quality attributes, then medical needs to mean something. The medical program and the adult use programs, they need to be set up in a way where medical is going to that nth degree to provide the highest quality, most known, like we know everything about this material. We know it has none of these microorganisms in it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's great. Very important for immunocompromised folks. Right. But for average consumers, um, I'm not sure that a lot of the testing um, is really doing that much to affect public health and safety beyond pesticide testing. Um, you know, but a lot of the mold issues and um, things like that, producers are pretty good at monitoring and controlling that um, on their own. And that's kind of been like <laughs> from, from decades and decades and decades and decades of gorilla growing, like, um, good growers know how to manage those things. And I think there are ways okay. that if they just um, had better um, quality systems and record keeping, they'd probably be able to demonstrate that and not even need testing. But that's a whole other rant. Yeah, I just, <clears throat> I imagine it's it's probably more of like the shadier businesses that get 
you know, there is still product out there that's very questionable. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're, yeah. you're right. You're right. I mean, for the most part, anybody that's buying cannabis at this point in Oregon is is purchasing from farms that are tried and true and have been through, you know, time and, and such that they're providing a good product. But there's still are some companies out there that seem like they're providing a questionable-ish type. Oh, yeah. And there always know. will be. Like Sure, sure, you know. yeah. But I think you're right. I mean, basically what we're looking at is that it's the immune immunocompromised uh, people that are really more affected more so than... Because, I mean, I grew up in the 90s, man. Like, not even grew up, but I was, right. you know, early 20s in the 90s. And I'm like, I should have had that shit a long time ago. I mean, well, that's, I mean, that's what I think about <laughs> in Mississippi. Like, you know, the, yeah. the things, the things that have gone into my body, um, yeah. the quality, the quality of things that I consume now are on a, an entirely different, yeah. entirely different universe yeah. than, um, yeah, what I smoked when I was a late teenager, yeah. early twenties. Um, yeah, that yeah. is something I, I definitely think about. And I, and I think that's a really important perspective to have that like, okay, yeah, all of these questions, these, this is important stuff definitely affects people's lives, health and safety. All of it's extremely important. Context is also important. And when we zoom out and those of us that have been involved in cannabis going back into the, into, uh, you know, far from pre, uh, far from the days of legalization. Yeah. Um, we, we have seen some shit and it is like, like real shit, like stuff that no one should consume. And we still consume. Shit. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so it's like, all right, I don't, you know, how much does some of this matter? Certainly to some people it does. And I think yeah. for people that the quality does matter, they ought to have the ability to find those products and yeah. understand and know, you know, solidly. But for the folks who really don't care so much, I'm not uncomfortable with a model that has less testing and less stringent quality standards for people that want to make that decision um, and are going more off of like brand reputation, knowing the farm, knowing the general, because um, we do this in almost everything we consume. Think about all the terrible foods we eat, um, dietary supplements, all sorts of things that like we don't have this level of information about to make these kinds of decisions so these are risks and and things we already assume every day on a regular basis and i think that's okay like i don't think that's uh something to be too worried about it's just always about um, options and allowing people to make their own decisions and if we were able to ease up a little bit <clears throat> and let producers have a little more freedom while still requiring quality, you know, like in food and dietary supplement manufacturing, the quality impetus is on the producer. You have the, um, the FDA has their GMPs that you have to follow. Um, you know, they leave it up to you to interpret that, generate your system for documenting how you're managing quality, managing everything is safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then if something goes out into the world that's not good and someone complains, that can trigger a recall, that can trigger an FDA audit. Um, and then you're put to the test to prove that your stuff is safe, that you dotted all, all your I's and crossed your T's. And if you didn't, well, yeah, you're probably going to get shut down. Um, and so I just, I would like to see more of that, particularly on the adult use side. You know, like I said, if we're going to have medical, let's have it really be medical. 
and hold it to a standard like a medical food, which is the thing. Yep. Like we have mm -hmm. ways of thinking about that. And for the other side, I think we could just get a whole lot looser and it would help a lot of producers by reducing barriers to entry, reducing overhead, uh, unnecessary overhead, in my opinion. And yeah, um, cost to the consumer, basically. Exactly. Reduce cost to the consumer, everything. Yeah. Um, but these are things, especially in the science community, these are ideas that are not always so welcome because yeah, I think yeah. there's often an impression that if you're not going maximum, like let's protect everybody as much as we can, um, that you're then condoning the opposite, that like we should let everybody do whatever they want. It doesn't matter if anyone gets hurt. And it's like there's so much nuance in between. And um, I just want to see the industry be made more appropriate for what it is and how people use it. You know, like it just, yeah, just the way things have gone. And, um, it's just kind of weird when you zoom out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um... And I kind of wanted to slowly transition this way and throw a, a bunch of stuff at you uh, in terms okay. of uh, the framework. Uh, so now you know that um, Oregon has passed, was it 109? Uh, I can't remember the measure now, but uh, so psilocybin therapy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's passed and done. Um, we now have one service center. Uh, yep. we have one cultivator, one, one facilitating center and, um, it, that's in Eugene, Oregon. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know all this, yep. uh, Epic healing. Yeah. And, um, it's really weird. Like I see, I see cannabis 2.0 all over again. Kinda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. Uh, Same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I also see like I, and let me run these first ideas by you as i understand it um cannabis is a bioremediator for the soil mm -hmm. um i understand that mushrooms can be a bioremediator for both uh, mm -hmm. air and soil so it can uh, you know um it does take up things from the air as well as the soil yeah um and water and water yeah and i find that interesting because i don't know that there's really any testing going on for for the mushrooms for for the cultivation side uh i've not seen any because i applied for my cultivator license for oregon oh cool okay yeah and so i've i've had a chance to uh you know um see what the application's like and uh you know see what the requirements are and yeah. ultimately for a cultivator it's my challenge has been a location yeah uh because you, on your application you have to have someone sign off that you're growing, you know, psilocybin yeah. mushrooms. And in Jackson County, that is a not welcome thing right now. Josephine's a little more lenient, but but getting up further north is way better, you know. But down here yeah, in Southern yeah. Oregon, man, trying to find someone. I've I've literally checked about 15, like I've checked way more than this, but 15 solid places that would have been good for me and talking to the landlord immediately shut down. So, um, you know, and they're willing to, to, they're willing to have liquor stores there. They're right, willing right. to have e even cannabis, uh, mm -hmm. dispensaries in their location, but won't have psilocybin cultivators. So that's what I run into. But uh, in that process, I've noticed that there's really no testing going on, uh, and which struck me as odd because 
mushrooms being a bioremediator, I mean, there's a lot of things that could get it, you know, and even having experience growing mushrooms now, I, I know, you know, what can get into them. And so I find it yeah. odd that, that we haven't applied anything uh, yet, um, although it's operating. Um, and there's a lot of questions I want to go with that. But to start is this like, like, what's your I mean, we're not even $15 a gram, by the way, too. Uh, right. But yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's so. Um, so. <laughs> but I mean, what's your, like that seems like that's a safe issue. Like, what are we doing? We're testing the shit out of cannabis and we're just throwing out it's, mushrooms. I mean, like there's a couple of couple of issues. Yeah. I mean, my thought I've I've got a few thoughts about this one. I I'm in a few um, groups of scientists working on testing methods for psilocybin and um, other constituents of psilocybin mushrooms. And so I've got a bit of a pulse, a sense of the pulse of um, kind of where the testing side is at and some of the challenges. And um, it, it, the first thing I'll say is testing mushrooms is not as straightforward as a lot of people thought it would be. Um, there were a lot of people that jumped into psilocybin testing that came from the cannabis testing world and tried to adopt met, uh, adapt methods um, to look at psilocybin and <clears throat> it's just kind of a different game and we're not even talking about contaminants yet just talking about psilocybin testing right right yeah um you know psilocybin is um not a stable molecule um no and so it changes a lot and i i've got yeah. experience um growing mushrooms as well it's a uh, yeah you learn a lot in terms of how the substrate mixes are put together and uh, a lot of things of what influences how those mushrooms grow your water inputs, uh, et cetera. And like we just mentioned, <clears throat> fungi mycelial networks are often great um, nets for catching contaminants of all sorts yeah. out of water, out of the substrate, whatever it is. Um, so it is something that we, we need to think about. I think the testing labs right now are more focused on how do I ensure I don't accidentally degrade psilocybin into psilocin before I test it? <laughs> that's that's been one yeah. of the big um so it's the challenges. conversion rate that's yeah i mean i can see that being an issue uh yeah yeah that phosphate especially in different varieties pops off so easy and um so there's that problem there's also the other problem that testing labs are focused on right now is um what are the active constituents of psilocybin mushrooms besides psilocybin because there's already been some studies coming out that are showing you know, synergistic effects between non-psilocybin molecules in these mushrooms, uh, harmalines and things that are in there um, that are also driving effects. So there's then the question of like, well, what should this method even be looking at besides just psilocybin? And then once you get through all of those questions, then you start thinking about like, well, what about contaminants? Um, and with contaminants, the main focus on testing right now has been, are we sure this fungus is actually the fungus think it is, or it should be. So identity right. testing. Um, right. And, and there's been a good bit of work going into that of trying to ensure that there are, um, requirements being thought of, um, to make sure that, um, you know, these mushrooms are not even just the, the species, but even the, um, the strain that you want them to be. And, um, so that alone is like a, a box of so many rabbit holes to go down because there's so many strains of um you just just talk about cubensis you know just philosophy cubensis 
<laughs> there are so many strains. Um, and then when you start working in other forms of psilocybin containing mushrooms, um, uh, there's there's a lot there. It's it's not just one organism like cannabis. Um, we're when we talk about psilocybin mushrooms, we're talking about all sorts of organisms. Um, yeah. So it presents a lot of challenges. And so I think that until all of those other challenges are met, it's probably going to be a while before testing labs are then also thinking about, well, what about um, contaminants in the water supply? What about metals? What about, you know, this, that, or the other? And each of those, tackling each of those problems requires some method development. Luckily, mushroom testing for things like metals, um, protein content, et cetera, that's been done a lot you know, just in the food industry mm -hmm. and natural products sure. industries. So we've got yeah. a bit of a shortcut to address some of those things. And so I think once legislators and the consuming public is, are asking more of those questions about what about contaminants? What about um, these inputs? How are growers making their substrates, et cetera? Um, I think once those questions come about, they'll probably be um, addressed quickly. I don't think it'll be hard. They're not hard problems to solve compared to <clears throat> some of the others that I just mentioned. And so I think we'll get there, but it's a long road. There's a lot of drama going on in the psychedelic space right now because so many places around the country are at least decriminalizing entheogenic plants, um, even if they don't go full psychedelics because uh, a lot of places are not on board with legalizing um, things like MDMA or LSD or DMT yet, um, but they're willing to go with ayahuasca and psilocybin mushrooms and peyote, um, not peyote, um, mescaline-containing cacti other than peyote, because peyote's um, there you go. on the verge of being knocked out of off the planet. Please, people, do not collect peyote. It's just a conservation issue, uh, unless you grow it yourself and you have your own supply, but do not take it from the wild. Um, the, uh, the guy's right, spirits right, will, yeah. not, will not thank you for that one. Um, no. so <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's kind of some of the things going on there. So, um, there are a lot of like shenanigans going on in the psychedelic space, kind of like there's been with cannabis, a lot of investor driven, weird decisions being made, companies being formed that are already falling apart a lot of weird dynamics. So like you mentioned, yeah, there's one treatment center in Oregon right now, one producer, super slow. Um, and it's gonna take a while because there's a, you know, mushrooms are just so different than the cannabis industry in the sense that people are not going to be, at least in these control therapy sessions, they're not gonna be consuming a lot of mushrooms regularly. They may microdose on their own um, or something like that, but um, you know they're not going to be attending a lot of these sessions and they're not going to be consuming a lot of mushrooms in these sessions. And there won't be as many people taking these sessions as use cannabis, et cetera. So it's going to be interesting to see how the market matures and at what point it's going to support as many players as want to participate. Um, cause I think right now, well, it's I think just, you, yeah, I, I think it. you're kind of, well, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I wanted to get to that. I, I feel like right now as it starts, it's kind of, uh, almost like a Silicon Valley 
yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's really only available for now. I'm not a doctor, but in my, uh, humble opinion i don't feel like anything less than like a macro dose could be valuable in one session i mean i don't know how a micro dose really at one time could really be of benefit right yeah in that um, context so it doesn't I, make so much I'm, sense no it's almost almost like a micro dose because you can do it in groups mind you so you can actually have up to five people right and yeah. so i find that interesting it's almost like as a micro dose they're presenting that as a, a recreational time bring your friends do a micro dose enjoy the time for five, six hours or whatever. Whereas, you know, in my opinion, if you're going there, you're going there for therapeutic reasons. And that yeah, would, right. if you're going to do it once, twice, three times, it's probably going to be a macro dose and that's going to be a $3,500 trip. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't yeah, know. That's... It doesn't really fit into helping everybody. It kind of fits into the elite status and then may trickle down at some point. It's yeah. I mean, I think it's, as as and, and just to interrupt spans. you so i gotta interrupt yeah, go you real quick before you go on and and when you contrast that with the black market you can buy an ounce for 100 right. bucks right right you know and yeah. have you know and i'm not promoting that i'm just saying but the reality is that you can find your own medicine and in a controlled setting set and setting if it's done properly maybe you can find mm-hmm. benefits for 100 bucks versus well know. and i think that's that's really important for people to understand as psilocybin therapy is is coming online you know psilocybin therapy i don't i don't believe it should be viewed as like oh this is a way to go legally like have a fun trip with my friends um it very much should be thought of as like you know uh, just like if you were having some intense um therapy of any other kind that's going to last six hours you know that's an expensive ordeal if you want to yeah. have a six-hour therapy session it's it's going to cost you thousands of dollars it, it you know it's just the way oh, yeah. it goes and so yeah. <clears throat> it's a specific um tool and opportunity for the people that need that and or or want that <clears throat> but as you're pointing out there are probably a lot of people that can get benefit from interacting with psilocybin mushrooms that don't need that that don't need that exact presentation and setting and maybe don't need a, um, you know, $150 an hour therapist. Um, you know, it's, it's so individualized. It's impossible for anyone to say for another person, you know, what's what, but I, I do think that's, it's important for people to be thinking about as they're like, Oh, psilocybin's being legalized for medical uses and stuff like, yes, it is. Um, but it's a very specific, type of experience and context. And it will vary, obviously. Different practitioners will have different ways of handling things. Group settings are gonna be very different than one-on-one sessions and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you know, the cost is significant. Um, I will say that because my wife is a mental health therapist and I'm familiar with the costs of a lot of different therapy options and things, it's pretty on par with, um, you know, a lot of other things that I would expect. Like when I first saw the cost of a session, I didn't think it was high. And I, I talked to my wife about it and she was like, hmm, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, just in terms of, you know, just thinking about cost of therapy and a lot of other things that go into, you know, kind of behind the scenes of, of um, you know, the mental health industry and, and all of that. Um, 
so yeah, I think people need to think critically of like, is that actually what you need or what is best for you or not? Um, I think if you're actually really, if you have some severe traumas that you're trying to work through and you need to be working through that with a serious mental health professional, um, you know, that's probably a really good option um, to do something like that. But if you're just, you know, if you're just a psychonaut exploring um, without any, um, you know, real serious um, work on your psyche that you're doing or anything like that, you know, I, I'm not sure it's going to really matter that much. And it would probably be a waste of money because um, it's not, you wouldn't actually well, get the and- value for what you're paying for anyway. No, but so so I guess I guess my feeling would be that then if if we're going to treat this and we already are, if we're going to treat this mm-hmm. as a therapeutic setting, counselors, you got one appointment before you do your trip, you got your main trip right. and then you got a, a reintegration, you know, you do yeah. all this. I, I get all that. Great. Therapeutic. But then insurance needs to get a board on this because yes, absolutely. Basically, yeah. if if it is if it is a medical yeah. issue, a therapeutic issue like any other medical thing, then there should be some form of insurance coverage for it so that people that do need it, like vets, you know, I don't know of a vet that has 3,500 laying around to get one session, um, which for a vet, it might take three. Yes. You know what I mean? These are not just one hitter quitters. I mean, yes, that might happen. But in general, I bet you it's going to take maybe one, two, three sessions, you know. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I think in the future. Yeah. And I think in the future, that's what I'm saying. I think we should if we're going to therapeutic this, then insurance needs to get the board on this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Period. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's sort of the asterisk to everything that I'm saying with these costs is like they're normal. But but usually you wouldn't be paying the full cost. Um, Right. So, yeah, I totally agree. Insurance absolutely (laughs) has to get on board. Um, And yeah. There's so many rants just around insurance. I, I hate. Uh, I know. I know it's fine. I I'm just with yeah, some I, issues I, with health insurance right now. Yeah. It drives me nuts. But yeah, you're no, you're absolutely right. For the people that do need it, and it's recognized as an actual um, uh, thing Therapy, that can hold yeah. a lot of promise for them, then yes, just like CBT, just like EMDR, just like anything, any other sort of um, uh, mental health treatment like that. Yes, it should be covered by by insurance. Absolutely. That should not even be a question. And it's ridiculous that that hasn't um, been addressed both in um, psychedelics and cannabis. You know, like we still don't have right. that in cannabis either. And it's it's crazy. Yeah. Interesting that you bring that up. We don't we don't have that in cannabis, but uh, it's but just yeah, liability just, uh... bullshit. I mean, it's just about around um the federal uh, law and, right. and the, the liabilities that the insurance companies perceive that they're taking on. But um, I assume it's no different than banking, right? When it comes to federal. Yeah, it's very similar. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just like, hey, it's not legally federal, you know, so, you know, sorry. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's really stupid. And I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think Do you the think whole we'll- control, controlled substances act should be completely overhauled. I don't, the whole way we handle control you mean nationwide yeah yeah i just it's all the whole system is totally screwed up um in terms of the drug schedules and and everything and and the impacts that that has on real people um yeah it's crazy i mean 
Uh, just even the concept of Schedule 1 drugs is weird to me.